Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. For message notes and links to big things going on at Hope, check out the notes section below. When you're done listening to this episode, take a minute to follow us here, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and download our free app. From there, you can find all of our recent message content, additional resources, and more. If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy. Why am I running? You ever asked yourself that? Why am I running? Why am I running from this problem that is not going to fix itself? Right? Why am I running from this thing that happened in the past that I should just sit down and work through? Uh, why am I running from this person or these people that really have my best interests at heart? Why am I running? I've asked myself that. You ask yourself that? There's something in our hearts as humans that just kind of makes us runners. We're just natural born runners. We run from responsibility. We run from commitment. We run from change or discomfort or risk. But one of the things that keeps me up at night um, is our natural propensity as human beings to run away from God. And uh, there's actually some statistics out now that, that tells us that that's happening in record numbers. Um, the Pew Research Group uh, has found that the number of people who identify as Christians who would proclaim to be Christ followers, that number is just dropping precipitously. Uh, in America, at least, it went from 85% in 1990 to 65% in 2020. So that's 20% of the population of Christians just gone in 10 years. And the research shows us that it's millennials, my generation, you can believe that, I really am, and uh, Gen Z are leading this exodus. In fact, um, a Barna study has found that 22% of millennials who once identified as Christians no longer do, and that a further 30% of Christians that would proclaim to be Christ followers in this millennial Gen Z range have no affiliation with any faith community whatsoever. And if you actually put all the different factors of research into it, like how many people actually pray occasionally, read their Bible occasionally, participate in some form of Christian community, believe in the foundational Christian doctrines, the number is pretty startling. Only 10% of millennials are what we would call resilient disciples or um, authentic followers of Jesus. And that's crazy to me. 10%. That should make alarm bells go off in our heads. Now, that, that really is just America or the Western world. So America and Europe, the exact opposite is happening, praise the Lord, in the Southern Hemisphere and parts of South Asia and parts of the Middle East where people are flocking uh, to God and to Jesus in record numbers. But still, those are crazy stats. And I could give you stat after stat, but I don't really need to because I think we've all seen it with our own eyes. We all can probably name someone who was really active in maybe our small group or maybe our community or church before 2020, before COVID, before the churches shut down, but now just like three years later and they're just nowhere to be found. Or maybe you have a son or daughter that was raised, you know, in a Jesus-loving home and once they hit college or once they hit adulthood, they just bolted away from God. Or maybe you have a coworker or a neighbor or you know someone like I do who used to be on fire for God. And now you're not sure what happens, but, but they're, they're a little cold, they're a little cynical, they're a little resentful, maybe even opposed to what they used to believe. And I know that for some, this is like more of an accident than a conscious choice. 
right? That the church is closed down. Maybe they, um, they're at risk for COVID even now. And so new habits get in. Or maybe people move to a new city. Maybe they have another child. And these new, these new schedules, these new habits kind of push spiritual um, disciplines and spiritual practices to the sideline. But there are a lot of people who have intentionally made a decision who would once call themselves Christ followers to call themselves that no longer. And there are many more non-believers who maybe would have not, not taken Christianity, like maybe they would have given it a shot, but now they've also made a conscious decision. No, 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 no. I'm never going to embrace the tenets of Christianity. And that's who this series is for. Now, I know they're not here, okay? <laughs> I get it that no people in those two groups are probably listening to this message right now, but you are. You are. And what I believe that God wants to do in this series is to equip all of us, all of you, me included, to maybe start some conversations or continue some conversations with people that you're close to that are running away from God that might just be the catalyst for them reconsidering or might even be the catalyst for them taking a step or two back towards God, just kind of testing the waters. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to go deep into some of the reasons uh, that we know this generation is running from the church and running from God. Um, and so we're going to dive into to those reasons. We're going to dive into some truths that our culture views as pretty ugly and pretty offensive and not consistent with how they want to live with the hopes of seeing the beauty and the power that's really there. So that when we talk to them, we're not, we're not arguing them back. We're not shaming them, but we can be winsome. And uh, we can woo them back into the kingdom. So that's where we're headed. But I just want to be very careful. I want to make sure that you know this is not an us versus them thing. It's not just them, if there is a them, that struggles with running away from God. It's really a we problem. It's a human problem. In fact, as I was uh, researching for this sermon, I was writing a list of all the times in the Bible that we see even people that are close to God start to run away from him. And I had to cut all the examples just out of uh, respect for your time. It was pages and pages, but you just go to the very first page of the Bible and you see the very first two human beings that God created in his image, two chapters in, they're running away. And then it's not just them, it's, it's all the humans that follow after. Their son, Cain, bolts away from God. And then after him, the whole entire human race does. They go as far away as they possibly can to where God says everyone thought evil and had evil intents all the time. So he starts over, there's the flood, he saves Noah and his family. But Noah, he's a week or two off the boat. And he's walking away from God and waking, walking towards that homemade Cabernet, right, if you know the story. So he walks away. Uh, king Saul walks away shortly after he becomes king. King Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, walks away the latter part of his life. David had seasons where he ran away from God. In fact, the, the rest of the Old Testament from First and Second Kings onwards is just this, this history, this pattern of Israel running far away and slowly making their way back and running far away and slowly making their way back. And in my Bible reading now, I'm in Jeremiah. And if you were to read Isaiah all the way through the end, the, the major and the minor prophets, you'd see one of God's most repeated complaints is, why are you running? Jeremiah 2, when will you stop running? When you stop running towards all these other gods, right? We're runners. We're runners. And it's not just millennials. It's not just Gen Z. It's all humans. In fact, such an important topic that Jesus, I think one of his, probably the most famous parable that Jesus taught is on this topic. It's about a runner like you and me. And uh, we actually read through this briefly a few months ago, but God's just been calling my heart back to it week after week, time and time again. And I want to share with you something that I've actually never seen in this. If you have your Bibles, 
You can turn with me to Luke chapter 15. It's the parable of the lost son uh, or the prodigal son. And some of you never heard that, but some of you are like, man, I've heard that a thousand times. Don't zone out. Hang with me. You're going to be shocked at how relevant this parable is. Uh, even 2,000 years after Jesus told it. And man, it just, it just hits our culture exactly where it's at. So we're just going to work through just a few verses of this, and I'll fill in the other spots. But we'll start in the red letters in verse 11. It says this, A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. That's the inheritance. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. It's the first part of the story. And this is the premier story of running away from God in the whole Bible. This is like the archetype. Jesus makes it very, very clear that this, in this parable, the father in this story is our heavenly father. And that the younger son in this story, it's all of us. It's all human beings. This story has been repeated millions and millions of times by countless human beings since Jesus told it. So the son basically goes up to his father one day and just verbalizes, hey, you kind of know this, I kind of know this, but I just want to get out of here. Like, I want to run. I want to be anywhere but here. And it seems crazy to me that he would even say this because if you read the rest of the story, you figure out that his father is pretty well off. Like he's, he's got it pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, he's, he's got a roof over his head. Um, he's got servants to like do all of his chores and stuff for him. He's got clothes on his back. He's got food to eat. His father's probably preparing, um, uh, paying for his, for his education. He's got his father's love. From what we can tell from the details that Jesus gives us, is he's a good father. He cares for his children. He cares for them physically, but he also cares for them emotionally as well. And yet he still chooses to run. And the reason, I think, is that even though he had everything that he could ever need, he's developed this kind of growing suspicion and this kind of nagging sense that I might have everything I ever need, but maybe I don't have everything I could ever want, right? A house, that's great. Food, that's great. The love of my father, okay. But maybe there's something else out there. Something I'm missing out on. Something that I can't get when I'm this close to my father and my father's house. And th that suspicion, that growing sense of maybe there's something else, that's what, that's what gets us all. The, the, the grass might be greener over there syndrome. That's what took down Adam and Eve. That's what, that, that's what really starts this whole process of running. That's how it started in my life in college when I ran far away from God into drugs and alcohol. So I think maybe, maybe the dare officer was wrong, right? Maybe drugs really are fun, right? Or maybe, maybe alcohol really is the answer. Relationships, all this sort of stuff. And we've seen it in our own lives too, right? We've seen the friend or the coworker who thought maybe, maybe life is better with that man or that woman instead of my spouse, and it's that, 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 that suspicion, that growing sense of doubt. Maybe there's something out there that drives us to run. And that's, that's what ultimately drove this son to run. It was his desire for freedom, right? It was his desire to get out from under the authority 
of his father. To cut those ties, to strike out on his own, and to explore and to see what kind of life he could make for himself. Now, just so you know, this was unheard of back in those days. This is kind of a rite of passage if you're a teenager or early 20s in our culture. But back in those days, people didn't do this. Like in the the culture of, of first century Middle Eastern culture, a son asking for his inheritance early was one of the the worst insults that a father could receive. In fact, a son was not only expected to wait until the father died to, to receive his inheritance, which was just proper, but he was also expected to care for his father and his mother well into old age until they actually passed away. And so this son asking for his inheritance early was basically him saying just out loud, hey, I could care less if you lived and died. In fact, it'd be easier for me if you were dead right now, but I'm not going to do that. I just know that, that, that I, I want something more and I don't want to wait. I want it now. It's a huge offense. But isn't he like putting the words in the mouth of our culture? <laughs> isn't he just stating out loud what we feel in our culture? Like when you talk to people in our culture, when they, when they think about God or the church, they just feel like it's this religious straitjacket. Like if they choose this Christian lifestyle, they're just going to be suffocated in rules and regulations and do's and do nots. Like the defining goal of our generation is self-discovery, right? It's, it's, it's self-actualization. It's not obedience. It's not to walk down a path that someone else has told you to walk down. The, the greatest good that we can think of is to live our truth, to live by our rules and our priorities, And one of the worst things that we can think of is someone having authority over us, not having the freedom to be who we want to be or to do what we want to do. And that's why I think a lot of people have decided to run away from God, especially now. And it might seem like a new thing. We obviously see it in this parable, but there's nothing new underneath the sun. In Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of the Lord, and he says, Oh, my people, listen to the words of the Lord. Have I been like a desert to you, Israel? Have I been to them like a land of darkness? Haven't I given them everything they needed? Have I withheld anything? No, no, no. Why then do my people say, at last we are free from God? We don't need him anymore, right? I think that's one of the main reasons people run. It's this this pull of freedom to do what I want to do, this this authority, self-authority that become who I want to become. I think another reason um, the son might have left is acceptance. It's not explicit in this text. Um, but to maybe fit in or to get in with the group of people. I, I was thinking about it. I don't think first century Jews didn't really have, grow up with these dreams of, of traveling to vast and foreign lands. Every time they were in a foreign land, they were in slavery. They were underneath Babylon or Assyria. In fact, they had been fighting for generations to go back to their homeland. But maybe this guy came into contact with some Romans or some people from the other part of the world that were, that were living it up. And he's like, man, they live differently than my pops does. And My brother does. And maybe he made an acquaintance or two, a friend or two, and he started to have these thoughts. Man, that's that's the type of life that I want. That's the group that I want to be a part of. Maybe that that was part of his decision-making, right? Acceptance or approval is a really, really strong motivator for people running away from God. I remember a few years ago, I was watching... um, a YouTube video is a deconversion story. I'm sure you've heard of these, but it's just a story of how people left Christianity. It was by two very famous YouTubers. I'm not going to say their name. I don't know if they can sue me or whatever. But, um, and uh, they started off around here, and uh, they moved to L.A., and they do, like, comedy and sort of stuff. And they were really big on YouTube. They still are, and uh, they were known for being Christians. And I remember um, watching a few years ago when they told their story, and um, 
And I noticed it's actually the way every single deconversion story is told. But basically, they kind of stated, you know, we, we, we slowly begin to look at the research and kind of look at the facts. And we just got to a place in our life where we just really wanted to be honest. We really wanted to be real. And what we figured out is this like truth after truth that we used to believe about the Bible. We just don't believe that it's true anymore. We don't think it's, it's believable. And so we're just doing this really, really hard thing, this very courageous thing of just kind of staying true to our hearts. We're going to fight against all the pressure. And um, we just need to admit that we no longer believe in God or the Bible. And we know we're going to suffer for this, but we're going to be brave. We're going to be strong. We're going to stand firm. And it was like this, this hero's journey of, you know, against all the odds, against all the pressure. And when I, when I watched that video the first time, I'm like, what's really going on here? So I rewatched it. And the more I watched it, the more I thought, no, 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 yeah, I don't think you're looking at the facts. Because like, the way that they defended their pushing away of biblical truths, it wasn't very deep or nuanced. I think they were looking at like, you know, maybe our YouTube views are going down a little bit, you know. And you didn't do the hard thing. You did the easy thing of agreeing with every single other person in our culture. And I don't think you're going to suffer a lot, guys. Like the only thing you're going to suffer is how to clear time in your calendar to be on all these different platforms and what you're going to do with the extra money that you make, right? Like it's not this hard or courageous thing. It's really this, this desire for acceptance, this desire to fit in. No one's going to be socially demonized for not being a Christian, but you might pay a price if you are one. But I think it goes even deeper than just this desire for acceptance. And I want to see if you've noticed this. And I'm going to get into some areas where it's going to sound political. I'm one of the least political people you ever meet. I, my hope is not in a donkey or an elephant, but in a lamb that was slain, all right? Not in a president, but a king in a kingdom, amen? Um, but back when I was growing up, as far as I could tell, we didn't have social media. I was like on the very beginning of the millennial era. And um, we had MTV, I remember that. And I remember like watching the MTV Music Awards or just watching stuff in pop culture. And from what I could tell, the people in my time, they wanted to be seen as like cool, like that 90s kind of awkward cool. They wanted to be seen as funny or the rock stars that I kind of idolized wanted to be seen as rebellious, you know. But at some point in the past 20 years, it's just switched. And now the people that I see in pop culture and the people that I see on TV and the people that I really see online, they could care less about being cool or about being viewed as rebellious or as, as funny. If I had to put a word for how they want to be viewed, it really is, it's holy. They want to be viewed as morally righteous. And that might sound weird, but, but look at your feeds. It's, it's we, we need to back this, this uh, we, we need to be an activist for this cause, and then this cause, and then this cause, and this cause. And that's not bad. It's just very, very different. The culture has changed. And I think politics, you can see this in politics as well. Growing up, maybe I was just so removed or young, but it just seemed to me like you just tried to figure out which party could maybe balance the budget a little bit better or maybe figure out this tax thing. But somewhere along the line, all these moral words started to be used, and now it's good versus evil. Now it's, now it's the morally righteous marching against the tyranny of the wicked. And now, like, you're really pressured. Like, you have to publicly condemn something as evil that other people will call evil. Or you're just as evil as the people that did the evil thing, right? And it's like, honestly, the goal of everyone now that I see on, on social media and pop culture is really to become like an Old Testament prophet. It's like the weirdest thing. And so what we get online and what you really see if you're kind of 
trying to understand cultures, we see tweet after tweet and post after post and Instagram after Instagram of people trying to get people to view them as moral or as virtuous and as other people on the other side as evil. And why is that? I've been asking myself this the past five or six years. I think partly it's because we're created in the image of God. All of us are. And when we see injustice, there's something in us that hates it and wants us to call that out. That's a good thing. But I also think, I just had a handful of conversations with people that aren't Christ followers. And you can just tell underneath the surface. I I truly believe every single person really knows, whether they admit it or not, that they're broken. That they don't really measure up morally, maybe the way that they posture or the way they want people to see them. Right? It's like, I'm, I'm okay going through your tweets for 10 years, but don't look at mine. I'm going to delete those. Okay? And because of that, I think inner secret sense of lack or not measuring up or maybe the sense of shame in response, we do everything that we can to appear the opposite. We do everything that we can to appear or to be thought of what we fear we aren't, which is holy and righteous. And again, it's the strangest thing, but it's nothing new. I was thinking about it this week in Genesis 3. What do we see Adam and Eve do? The moment they realize that they're in sin, what do they do? Try to hide it. They sow fig leaves. They try to hide from themselves and from every other person watching that they're, they're trying to kind of make them believe that they're not as bad as they know themselves to be, right? And the hard part is that in our culture, what is considered true or not true, what is considered good or not good, what is considered morally good or morally bad, it changes, doesn't it? It goes this way and that way. What's good one day is bad the next. What was bad one day is fine the next, right? Something that's fine this year is going to be really problematic in the next few years. And so we've really transitioned into an honor and a shame culture. And here's the whole point of all of this. There's a growing number a growing number of biblical truths, foundational Christian principles just written in black and white in this book that our culture doesn't just view as like old-fashioned, as out of date and out of touch, as insufficient or as not true. No, no, no. They view them as, as morally wrong, as dangerous, as evil even. And I've had a few conversations just the past six or seven years with people that have run away from God or that refuse to even embrace Christianity because, not because they want to sin, not because they want freedom, but because they want to be viewed as morally right. They want to be viewed as a good and a loving person, and they can't do that if they're Christians. And this is something that we have got to lean into, and we've got to grapple with, and we've got to understand if we're going to be used by God to reach this generation. They're running from God to appear righteous. They're running from God so they won't be canceled or they won't be called out or they won't be maligned. And again, this is so brand new to me, but it seems a lot like the Pharisees. The more that I've thought about this, right, their whole identity was what? Holy, righteous, right? Holier than thou, better than other people. And they distanced themselves from Jesus. Why? In fear that they would be canceled, in fear that other people would look down on them, that they'd lose their clout. Now they did it because Jesus hung out with sinners Now we do it because Jesus says there's such a thing as sin, you know, but it's still the same thinking. So there's all these reasons that that we run for freedom, 
to do what we want to do, for authority, to become who we want to be, for uh, acceptance, to be accepted, to be led into this group, and now to cover over like our shame, to, to appear to be righteous. And as I was reading this story, something just jumped out to me that it hasn't before, right? So we're going to skip down to verse 22. But the son, he wastes all of his money. He moves to a land. He wastes it all in drinking and all sorts of stuff. And he ends up homeless and he ends up hungry. And he actually he comes pretty close to starving. And he says, okay, well, maybe, maybe it's time to go back. And if I go back, my father will hire me as a servant. So, and then he's going to feed me, right? So that, that's the reason he goes back, because he's hungry, because he just wants a meal. So he makes that long journey all the way back himself. And when the father sees him coming at the bottom of the driveway, we know the story, right? The father runs to him, which was never done, and just embraces him in this bear hug. And while he's in this hug, the, the younger son starts saying, hey, what do you think about me becoming like a servant and getting some food? And this, the, the, the father does not reply, completely interrupts him. And look at what he says, verse 22. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. And we breeze past this, but I want to stop. This is so cool. When the son walked up, can you imagine what his clothes looked like? Probably originally what? Super fashionable. The fanciest clothes that you could get in that faraway land. That when he walked down the road, people stood up and took notice, right? Hey, that guy's wealthy. That guy's respected. They were kind of like a symbol of honor. But now, after sleeping in the gutter and sleeping in the pigsty and making that long voyage on foot, they're probably just these, these rags, these strips of what they had once been. And all the honor and all the prestige is gone. And what's there for everyone to see? The wine stains and the pig muck and the blood because he's almost starving. It's a shame just on full display for everyone to see his failure, the consequences of sin. And the father sees that, and the first thing he says to his servants, hey, hey, let's, let's cover that. I want you to cover that, right? Go get the best robe. Maybe it was his robe, I don't know. But go get the best robe, and I want you to cover that shame. I want you to cover that sin. And that's what God can do to all the people running from him in our culture that have, that have run from him in an order to appear righteous, right? That have run from him in, in, in order to appear to be moral. They can come to him and admit what they would never admit to anyone else. I'm not. They can tell him what they could never tell or announce on Twitter or social media. I like to pretend to be holy, but I'm messed up. I'm broken. I got a past. I failed. I've done some bad things. I don't have it all together. And the father who has never canceled anyone, right, um, won't just forgive them for not being righteous, but he will clothe them in the righteousness that they could never give themselves, the righteousness of his son, right? And what's better, having the appearance of righteousness and morality and having to keep up the appearances every single time the rules change or actually being made righteous in the presence of God once and for all? A righteousness that, that doesn't depend on what you do or don't do, right? And it's not just the robe. He says, next, I want you to get a ring for his finger. Remember the son wanted the authority to become who he wanted to become and the freedom to do what he wanted to do? Back in those days, a ring symbolized authority. When Joseph became the second in charge in Egypt, right before the Exodus, um, you probably watched the Disney movie, uh, the pharaoh gave um, Joseph his, his royal signet, his royal ring, so that when Joseph spoke, when Joseph made a decision, it was like Pharaoh, 
was speaking. It was like Pharaoh was deciding. And that's what the father gives to the son. And it's so beautiful. Because the son had his own authority to do what he wanted to do. And the son had the freedom to do what he wanted to do. And it, it didn't end very well, did it? It ended poorly. But now the father gives him the authority to do what the father wants him to do. He gives him the freedom to live the way the father wants him to live. And that is so much better. When you first start running into sin, it feels like freedom, doesn't it? And it just ends up in slavery every single time. It always ends up in death. But when you come to the Father, because of what Christ Jesus has done on that cross, you receive ultimate freedom, right? Freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom to step into the joy and the life that he alone can offer. I mean, what's better, having the freedom to do what you want to do or having the freedom to become the person that God has created you to be, right? And then he says, and one last thing, let's get sandals for his feet. Back in those days, servants didn't wear shoes inside the household. They went barefoot. Only the family members wore sandals or shoes. And that's what the son wanted to be, a servant. But the father says, no, no, no. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. You'll never be a servant. You're my son, right? You're my child. And that's the type of unconditional acceptance that every human being is looking for. People come and go. Groups and crowds, they'll welcome you in and they'll kick you out the very next day. Where was the young son's new friends when he was in the gutter? Nowhere to be seen. But God's forever and he will never leave you or forsake you. And then finally he says this, and go ahead and kill that fattened calf. <laughs> that calf we've been fattening up for a special occasion. And it's funny because this is the only thing the son came back for, right, a meal. That's the only reason he came back, because he was hungry. <laughs> because his greatest need in his eyes was to not starve. And the father's so good that he provided that need for him, but he provided so many more as well. And it's so cool when I see this because we'll have people that have been running from God for years and then their marriage will start to fall apart. And they'll call us because they see something on Facebook and ask some questions. They're like, well, I mean, re-engage is way cheaper than long counseling sessions. So uh, they say, I just really need help with my marriage. And it's so cool because they'll come and they'll just step foot into a group, take one step towards God. And we see him as God, God heals their marriage, but then he just, he just opens their eyes to their, their sin and just allows them to know how good Jesus is and welcomes them in. And we see not just like their marriage heal, but the whole, the whole self heal. And that's how good the Father is. It, it doesn't matter the reason you come to him. You can come to him for any reason whatsoever. Selfish, impure, it doesn't matter as long as you come to him. And he'll, he'll meet not just what you think is your greatest needs, but what he knows is your greatest needs. He says, we must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the real party began, right? And that's what can happen for us. That's what can happen for our friends and our coworkers and our roommates who are running. We can play a part of them being returned to life. They're searching for something and they're so desperate to find it. And what they don't know is their real need is to be found by their heavenly father. So that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. We're going to go deep into some things that our culture's running from. Things like the idea of sin or Jesus dying on the cross. Why would God have to kill his own son? Or the idea of organized religion or 
salvation by faith, right? With the hopes that we can see the beauty in these truths. And that when we get out in the culture, we're not lecturing people. We're not causing any further division. We're just sharing with them the joy and the beauty that we found in God. And just offering them a hand if they want to join with us. But in order to do that, we can't lead anyone down a path that we haven't walked down ourselves, can we? And so I think it's really important before we step deep into this series that we just do the hard work on our own hearts as well. Maybe you're watching online at one of our campuses and you haven't run so far away from God. Maybe it's just been a step or two. Or maybe you have. Maybe you run as far away as you've ever been. What I want to do is just take a moment. It might be awkward. We're just going to have music kind of playing in the background. But I just want to give you 15, 20, 30 seconds to just ask yourself the question, am I running from God? In what areas of my life am I running from God? How am I tempted to run from God? And I just want to give you the space to just confess that and to repent, right? What does that mean? Change directions, to turn back to him so we can be used by him in the coming weeks. So I'm gonna give you just a few moments to do that. Father, would you forgive us? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it to thy courts above. Father, we just confess that we do run. Um, would you bring us back? And as confusing as culture is, as it just changes and changes and changes, the cool thing is that you never do. <laughs> That you're the same God of Genesis chapter 1. You're the same God that welcomed David back. You're the same God, the same Father. You have the same heart that welcomed the Son and this story back. And um, you're standing with arms wide open even now. So, Father, would, would you use us somehow, some way to make a dent in the crazy statistics? And would we see a generation not running from you but to you because of what we allowed you to do through us? And it's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out gethope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.